Hello and welcome to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton. You know, I had one goal when I started this podcast, and that was to bring zero cost information to you about mental health and the evidence-based tips that you can use to stay well together. And as part of that promise, I only partner with organizations or people whose products I really believe in. So I'd like you to know more about Active Recovery TMS. TMS is an evidence-based non-drug therapy for depression and OCD. And if your depression medication has failed to bring you relief, transcranial magnetic stimulation is both safe, it's effective, and it's covered by most insurances. My late husband did not respond well to antidepressants or mood stabilizers, and I would have given anything to know that there are other remedies for depression that have been studied, tested, and FDA approved. TMS is targeted to the specific area of the brain that is underactive in depression and overactive in OCD. And the patient testimonials, which we're going to be sharing, are so emotional. These people literally have their lives back after undergoing treatment. I believe in the entire team at Active Recovery TMS, and they'll work with you on an individual basis to make sure you get relief. TMS therapy is covered by most insurance plans and with multiple locations in Oregon and Washington, there is a location near you. Learn more at activerecoverytms.com. To beyond well. I'm Sheila Hamilton. And as you know, this is a program for people who want to learn more about our interior lives. And we've been focusing this month on the future of mental health in the workplace. We have asked five industry leaders to join us to answer questions. And this week, I'm totally thrilled to be with a man whom I really admire and respect, both for his role in a leadership position at WebMD and because I believe he truly embodies the qualities that we're talking about when we speak about leading to mental well being. John Harrison is the general manager at WebMD, and he's had 20 years of experiencing, innovating, architecting successful brand products and business strategies. He's also a very creative and strategic and relatable content creator on LinkedIn. So if you don't already follow him on LinkedIn, I really think that you should find John Harrison and seek him out. John, welcome to the program. It's so good to see you. Sheila, it's an absolute delight. Thank you for the, you know, the opportunity to talk about what we're both passionate about. So I wanted you just to explain, first of all, what you do at WebMD and how that allows you to get this kind of cool view of future trends in the workplace and what's happening right now. Yeah. So uh, as you mentioned, I'm the general manager of WebMD Health Services. You know, we have been uh, servicing large organizations with holistic well-being programs uh, for over 20 years. We support large employers, we support health plans, health systems, public sector organizations like cities and states and counties, you know, municipalities, education institutions, and our, our sort of central core mission is all about empowering well-being in everyone. Mm -hmm. And when you think about well-being, right, well-being is so many different things. Not only is it obviously nutrition and exercise, but you go into financial well-being, you yeah. go into social, you go into mental and emotional support. And there's just so many different aspects that have been really evolving. And we're focused on really providing that holistic solution so yeah. that we can really meet individuals where they are with, and I, I say this all the time internally and, and to others, is we want to meet people without shame. We want to meet yeah. people exactly where they are 
offer sometimes encouragement, sometimes maybe a little bit of a kick in a direction, <laughs> but it's all about just meeting people where they are so that they feel empowered to really sort of get on that path for themselves. And that's where we're really passionate. I, I love that you talked about shame because I think when it comes to mental health, this is probably the biggest sea change that I'm seeing is that people are beginning to recognize that mental health, A, has to be a conversation we have in the workplace, and B, we must be able to approach people on this topic without shame. Well, I think it's really interesting. Certainly the, the concept of anxiety, the concept of stress, the concept of depression, has been with us for a very long time. I think especially when you think about different generations, how we've grown up, you know, in the workforce, in our lives, we have been really sort of conditioned to believe that certain things are okay to talk about and certain things are not okay to talk about. Right. And I think what you've seen that has always existed, but has been just blown up into much different levels of awareness and, and ability to talk to through COVID has really been, wow, we're now in people's homes. We're now seeing people at different levels. And when you and I joined the workforce, you walked into the workforce with your shield on, yeah. the walls built up, and a certain expectation of I need to be and act a certain way mm -hmm. in order to be accepted. And I think what's happened through COVID more than anything has just been a shattering of those walls and an opening of, wait a second, we're all people we're all dealing with a level of sort of stress and anxiety that is now shared. And so through that shared stress and anxiety, it's opened avenues and doors for us to be able to actually relate and talk about the other stresses and anxieties yeah. that are actually really, really prevalent in the organization. And I think that whole separation of, you know, personal and professional and that belief system that has historically been a belief system of, you know, I have my professional life and I have my personal life and never the two shall meet has really changed a lot. And, you know, I can talk about it for days because it, you see it in employees, right? You yes. see it in burnout, you see it in isolation, you yeah. see it in illness, you see it in certainly turnover, right? Of, of people taking time for themselves. A lot of that is just tied to a real unhealthy balance yeah. of, of how people have really been living their lives and, and, we can call it the great resignation or the great reshuffle, but it's really more than anything. I, I really believe it's a reckoning of what's appropriate mm. for individuals, you know, within themselves. And it's different for every individual, but everyone is going through that reckoning of what's right for me, you know, with respect to what's right for my life and balance between these things. And it's just no longer acceptable to not be able to be human mm -hmm. everywhere you are. I think that's a lot of it. John, one of the things that I see, and I, I'm sure you've seen the same, is that you have a group of people who ascended to the upper echelon of management or, or C-suite who have been very steeled in that way that you present the person walking through with, I left my personal life at home and this is my work life and this is all you get to see. And these are the people that are the most critical in actually ensuring that any well-being program actually takes hold and employees believe it. So how do you change the hearts and minds and even the education of this group of people who really are kind of the carriers of that old standard? It can be challenging, I think, at times. And what I can speak to from experience is it really requires a tremendous amount of vulnerability and it requires a tremendous amount of authenticity. And I think that, you know, in the world that we live in, 
there are pressure points inside of organizations that are forcing perhaps even those most steely veteran leaders to re-examine previous points of view, previous decisions that they've made, attitudes, style changes. And when you have employees of all generations now in the workforce, so we have baby boomers, we have Gen X, we have Gen Z, we have certainly have millennials in the workforce, very different needs from each of those generations, because each of those generations have grown up with different expectations around how the world operates. Mm -hmm. And as a leader, you have to be really present to what the needs of your workforce are. And if you're not, you will feel the effects of that. You will feel the effects of that through perhaps, you know, not the performance that you're looking for. You'll feel the effects of that through turnover at a level that's not what you really anticipate or expect. You know, certainly if you're doing things like serving your employees and getting a sense of where are the concerns and how do they feel? A simple question that a lot of times companies don't ask is, you know, would you refer to a friend to work here? Yes. Right. It's it's the classic net promoter score type question. You know, would you actually refer to a friend to work in this organization or not? Yeah. If the answer is no. It's a huge problem. Organizations, I think, have been awakening to a lot of these things. I mm-hmm. think that leaders, especially the, the generation that I'm in, frankly, have been coming to terms a lot with the reality that, you know, maybe it's actually okay to have self-acceptance. Maybe yeah. it's actually okay to have self-love and even use words like that. Yeah. Um, maybe it's okay to express feelings versus that sort of steely demeanor. A lot of that comes with personal growth. And a lot of that comes through the pressure points that exist in life and society and our organizations. I love the carrot and the stick approach. And you just outlined that so well, because it, it does take both. You know, you're going to have to show hard data about the organizations that are losing ground because they're not adapting this way. And then you're also going to be able to talk to those managers who have gone through training or had emotional intelligence classes and really feel like they're on a growth curve now because of it. That's what's well, exciting and, to me. And there's data that's out there, right? So, I mean, we know from data that's out there that two thirds of employees have reported some form of mental health challenge undercutting their job performance during COVID. We've read stats like 40% of employees are battling burnout. And you read some of the other stats around, you know, how many people are changing jobs right now and related to this. As a leader of an organization that cares about stability, growth, performance, things like that, if you're not paying attention to these things, you're blind because they're so big right now that you cannot pretend that they don't exist. It's not possible. And so there's a tremendous amount of focus on how do you then talk about these things in a real way? How do you bring solutions to the table as well to really help in this this respect? I know that... On the one hand, seclusion and isolation ended up creating a lot of the problems that some employees reported. The quarantine especially was uniquely hard on mothers, young mothers, especially single mothers. Um, But then there is the flip side of that newer generations that have never had the benefit of being in the office and having this kind of face-to-face and the mentorship that occurs when you see someone at the stack machine all the time. So where do you, John, as a leader land on this, where the future of the workplace is headed with regards to remote work or hybrid work? And how will that impact the mental well-being of employees? Well, it's not a simple answer. I think that's the most important thing. I don't think there's a 
this is exactly the way that it's going to be for every organization or yeah. even inside of a single organization. It may be very different from job function, team, to location as well. So the first thing you have to get over is there is no universal answer, right? And, and I do think that those organizations that have embraced a, a standard policy across every type of employee, every office location. Generally, what you've seen is those that have moved in that direction, it has not been met well yeah. by the employees. There are obviously certain types of job functions that are impossible to do remote. Certainly, if you're in the retail sector, if you're in the manufacturing sector, there is a reality that a certain group of workers are going to be in person. I think sometimes when we start talking about this also, we're, we're somewhat at a certain level putting all of those types of organizations and saying, well, of course they have to be in person because of the job function that they do. But then the others, I really believe that there's going to be some level of hybridness that, that exists. I know from, you know, just the, the groups and employees that we work with, we have a group of employees who have always been in the office and prefer to work in an office environment yeah. and want that collaboration of connection. And then we have other groups of people who are just as fine being remote and probably yeah. being remote forever. But I, I really do think that, especially as time has gone by, people don't have a concern going to the office. They just want to make sure that when they go to the office, there's reason, there's intent, there's purpose, and there's value associated with it. Mm. You know, me, me coming to an office and for sake of argument, being on a Zoom call and never talking to a human while I'm here, right. there's no value in that. Exactly. But we've done a lot of things to really, really try and meet everyone where they are, regardless of where that may be. And there's a lot of strategies, I think, that are out there that can really help support that. You made the comment of the new employee and, and perhaps the you know, the younger generation who hasn't even had an experience yeah. of a workplace and all they really know is working from home. It's very real. And I think that as a leader in an organization, you have to do a lot more to think about what, what does the whole concept of onboarding mean? What is onboarding not only in the context of, you know, the job function that they're performing, but what does onboarding mean in respect to the culture of the company? Yeah. And how is that not just something that someone experiences in the first couple of weeks or the first month that they're employed, but how is that really felt on an ongoing basis throughout the organization every day, every week, every month, every quarter, every yeah. year? You know, the organizations that are actively investing in culture is, is obviously not only important for making sure that values are aligned and ultimately people are sort of, you know, rowing in the same direction for the performance that the organization is looking for. But you're also really speaking to people are dying for meaningful connections in their lives, you know, whether that's personally, whether that's professionally. And again, as these things blend, you know, if you're not fostering a pathway for people to have meaningful connections, yeah. you then end up with individuals that have no sense of attachment. They have no sense of loyalty. Right. They have no sense of shared vision. And as a leader, those are the things that we should always be striving for is how do we help optimize and maximize those items? It's so interesting that you're talking about um, the office being the place where connection will occur, right? And I was just thinking about the Wall Street Journal article the other day on Salesforce, how they've actually taken over the multiversity campus up in Santa Cruz, and they're going to do all onboarding there, all yeah. DEI training, all everything that has to do with team building, with meeting your new team member, all of that is going to be 
on a, a kind of like this fantasy site. And I, I was thinking about that, like, you know, you think about an organization like Nike with all of those buildings that are sitting empty. Maybe some of those buildings will have to be the cultural center. Maybe that's what's going to have to occur. What Salesforce is doing is brilliant, right? It's yes. taking a retreat type environment yeah. and, and turning it into a sort of an oasis of welcoming yeah. and embodying you know, who they are and indoctrinating to the quote unquote Salesforce way. But I think though that physical presence is obviously valuable and important, but it also won't work for all situations because in the world that we're in, most organizations are hiring employees that are not physically even in the same city. That's right. So as an organization for us, we have now, we're probably 65% of our staff would be in a location where there is not a major office. Oh, wow. So they're spread all over the United States. Yeah. And so we think about how, how do you do that sort of cultural indoctrination virtually because you have to, and obviously with video, video has really opened up the doors and it's, so a short story, I, you know, before COVID hit, I was a non-video user and I was in meetings all the time. Yeah. And when COVID came and it, it, um, we also, we made a flip and a switch to immediately adopt video as a primary use for the organization. And people that I had worked with for three or four years, very directly, maybe on the phone, maybe on a phone call, you know, multiple times a day, every day. And, I, and I'd see them in meetings that we would have, we'd get together yeah. maybe every month or every quarter. The difference in relationship that I have now with those same individuals, because we've now turned to video and we've all just allowed ourselves to be a little bit more open, a little bit more vulnerable, wow. a little bit more exposed. The depth of relationship is, it's immeasurable, the difference. I, I still find myself sometimes joining calls and you never want to force someone to be on video if they need that break yeah. because the Zoom fatigue is, is a big deal. Yeah. A lot of it just comes down to really simple things. Do you have a good mic? Do you have a good camera? Do you not? Great. I'll send you one. You'll have one right. tomorrow. The, there's the depth. You cannot mistake the value that we've also been able to tap into. And I think, again, as a leader, you've got to walk the talk. You've got to be there. I'm video every call. I'll eat lunch with you. I'll drink my, my water <laughs> bottle with you. You have to sort of like break things down and say, you know, if we were physically together, we'd be doing those things. Right. So what is it about this video that makes us resistant or hesitant? And if there's a culture of, you know, we're all together. Yeah. Great. You're wearing yoga pants because you're wearing yoga pants. Like, right. great. Yeah. Let's, let's get into it. And let's figure out how we provide value to, wow. you know, to our organization. I love that story. That's, it's really amazing to think about the, the deep benefits that can occur because in some ways when people can be in their own environment, you do get to see more of their whole selves, their personalities, their homes, their dogs, their, their kids. Know. So it's awesome. John, one of the I think most perplexing things about attempting to sustain any well-being program is that people say they want this cultural connection, they want the support of the C-suite, and then people put in programs and after two weeks, interest wanes and people say, I'm just too busy for yeah. well-being. How, how do you deal with that, even in your own organization, that people say, I am so overwhelmed with the amount of work I have that I can't participate in this great thing you're offering? I think there's a couple of things. I think you have to really make sure that you're offering a variety of ways for people to engage. Yep. You have to be aware of the fact that individuals are going to engage 
where and when and how they feel that it's right for them. Yeah. Right. I think one of the biggest things that I've learned, especially as we've been really here driving different well-being programs, is that the pathway for connection mm-hmm. with individuals is different. So I might connect, you know, we might connect over exercise or diet. Yep. And we could talk about the types of foods that we're making. And I could tell you a great breakfast that I made. You could share a dinner that you had last night. And we could get into recommendations on healthy eating and the way we try and exercise and keep ourselves physically fit, that might be the connection for us for sake of argument. For someone else, it might not be at all. Of course not. Right? At, yeah. at, at any level. They're into beer and bowling, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They feel that shame. They feel like, God, I don't want to talk about what I'm eating because totally. that's, that's my problem. But if yeah. you want to talk to me about sleep, <laughs> I'll talk to you about sleep. Let's, right. let's, let's talk about sleep and let's yeah, talk that's about really how- a great point. You know, how sleep is challenging or- if you want to create perhaps, you know, a social giving cause that I'm passionate about yeah. and a volunteer aspect that I can get into, well, I'm, I'm interested in that. And I think what we have found is if you approach things with a holistic view, with a multiple ways of, of where individuals can choose how and where they want to connect, as they connect in through one of those sort of spokes, you will find that they then open themselves to participating in more things. Mm. And so it's a little bit of like, you know, it's a little like you've got to land somewhere. Yeah. As long as you recognize the fact that that landing doesn't have to be the same for every person. And I think that's the magic of the well-being programs that are really working that are out there right now is a multitude of ways of providing value and providing impact. You're allowing a little bit of self-selection And certainly a lot of programs will have strong incentives around them. And so you get these incentive programs that are points-based. You know, it's a little bit of a pick your own adventure, right? You can choose, you can say, I'm going to go down this path because that's what's right for me. Those things work. And yeah, there's there's still the big organization step challenges that you want to do. And we're all going to rally around this thing. Those, Those obviously work as well. But I think more than anything, it's about finding the in- which and recognizing that the in is different for every employee. Everyone's path and frankly, even definition of what well-being means is unique. We used to say all the time, you'd go in and you'd, you'd ask a group of people to find well-being and you'd go around the room. Every single person's definition was different mm. because it's unique to them and it's unique to where their heart is. I'm thinking about not just the power of a sustained um, litany of programs and and the flexibility of allowing everyone to define their own well-being, but also the importance of peer support when people really are struggling, the importance of specific programs that help identify to screen. And so I'd like you just in the few minutes we have left, just to talk about both the importance of screening and of these pulse surveys that you guys do to really help people understand, oh my gosh, I scored really low on that measure of well-being. <laughs> I maybe am not doing as well as I thought. Certainly a core tenant of most well-being programs is some form of a, of a health or well-being assessment and yeah. that you can have a, a viewpoint of, of where am I on a, on a year-over-year basis. Maybe you know, I've made some strides in certain areas and then I have some other areas that I, that I really should be focusing on. You know, we're a big believer in biometric screenings as well of actually yeah. getting, you know, an actual screening check. 
certainly all of our programs are also certainly recommending your primary exam on an annual basis and all, all the respective things that you should be doing. Because, you know, we can talk a lot about the aspects that are also important from a social and economic standpoint, but it's good to know your numbers. Like yeah. it's, it's good to know what your numbers say. Yep. It's good to know how your numbers relate to yeah. averages of people like you, whether yeah. it be age or demographic and things like that, because so often it's just about knowing. Right. And then it's about the pathway of, okay, now that I know, how do I attack? How do I move on that? So that it's a core tenet of every program, definitely. If you haven't spoken about this today, well-being obviously encompasses our physical, financial, spiritual, psychological. What is the one thing that you, both as a coworker and as a boss and a person who really cares deeply about other humans, what's the one tenet that you bring to work with you every single day around people's value? I think the most important thing is authenticity. We have to live in a world, we have to work in a world where people are allowed to be their true authentic self and that there's full acceptance for who they are and what they bring. All organizations have mission, they have vision, they have company objectives, they have revenue objectives, they have things that they're trying to do. And every organization will talk at some level around how do we maximize our potential to do those things. Yeah. The simplest way of maximizing your potential is you actually get all of your employees to fully bring themselves. And how can you fully bring yourself if you're not allowed to be your authentic self? So I think it all starts at a very, very foundational level with creating a culture of openness, of acceptance, an allowance, and frankly, an invitation. We had a town hall meeting where I, quite honestly, invited everyone. And I use those words, you know, I'm inviting you to be your authentic self. Because if you can be your authentic self, we have an opportunity to be our collective authentic yeah. self and actually drive the type of impact and the type of value that we want to drive. And I would say that there are not enough organizations in the world that are talking with these types of words. Yeah, I love your language, John. I really want to encourage you if you're in this field, I know a lot of people who are psychologists and therapists listen, follow John on LinkedIn, his insight into this world and just the way that you put your sentences together always speaks to that authenticity. I really appreciate it, John. It's been wonderful to spend time with you. If you've been listening and loving the podcast, as some of you say you have, please give us a thumbs up wherever you listen. Mostly Apple Podcast does the best job with their reviews. Thanks again and make it a great day. Bora Health is a nonprofit alcohol and drug treatment center in Portland, Oregon, that has been helping youth, adults, and families for nearly 50 years. They offer compassionate, comprehensive, and affordable care for everyone, regardless of background, orientation, or ability to pay. Bora recently opened a new state-of-the-art campus in Portland's Southeast Gateway District, and the entire campus is healing and supportive. You can find out more about their full array of evidence-based therapies for drug and alcohol treatment at www.forahealth.org. If you or a loved one needs support, there are many options and personalized approaches to care. Reach out to Fora Health at 503-535-1151 or see the show notes for more details.